You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am extremely honored today uh, to be joined by Rear Admiral Aisha Mix. Uh, Admiral Mix is the Chief Nurse Officer in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps. In this capacity, Real Admiral Mix provides guidance and advice to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Surgeon General, and the nation's nursing community on prevention, public health, health systems development, and the role of the nursing workforce in achieving health and wellness in the country, with a commitment to protecting, promoting, and advancing the health and safety of the nation, Rear Admiral Mix has served in various roles within HHS and the Department of Homeland Security. In each opportunity, she has focused on improving diversity in leadership, enhancing nursing workforce development, and ensuring access to high-quality health, human services, underserved, and address populations. Internationally, Rural Admiral Mix represents the nation to the World Health Assembly, where she advises on nursing practice, education, and leadership as part of the International Council of Nurses, Government Chief Nurse, and Midwifery Officers. Rear Admiral Mix graduated with her Bachelor's of Science and Master's of Science degree in nursing from Hampton University. She completed her Master's of Public Health degree at Johns Hopkins University and received her Doctor of Nursing Practice degree with a focus on educational leadership from Case Western Reserve University. An experienced clinician, public health practitioner, educator, and emergency manager, Rear Admiral Mix is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and is a consummate advocate for nurses, the nursing profession, and the public health. Welcome to the show, Real Admiral Mix. Thank you so much. That was definitely a mouthful, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised how many people give me longer bios, but thank you. No, that was good. That was a good. That was a good uh, summary of some of the work that you do. Uh, so I greatly appreciate it. Uh, greatly appreciate your time uh, for joining me today. Uh, we'll get right to this. My first question, which is, how did you get started in the world of nursing? Got it. It's it's always a fun story for me to tell. Um, I've known since I was young, at least middle school, that I wanted to be a healthcare professional. And at that time, um, you know, I really loved kids, and so I went into high school, you know, with the thought that I wanted to become a pediatrician. And I went on college tours and, you know, I, I say it all the time, but I don't actually remember how I ended up at the School of Nursing, but somehow I did on a tour and they learned that I wanted to be a pediatrician. And the dean asked me if I knew the difference between nursing and medicine. I mean, of course, you know, I knew the difference between, I thought I did at least, between a doctor and a nurse, but 
what they told me was that, you know, in medicine, there is a focus on the disease and in nursing, there's a focus on the person. And so they encouraged me to think about what intrigued me most and make the decision. And at that point, I knew I wanted to be a nurse because really what I wanted to do was to really impact and touch and engage with people and help them understand how to keep themselves healthy. So I entered into Hampton as a nursing major instead of pre-med. And, you know, as far as the pediatric piece, you know, I realized that I enjoy happy children and I just could <laughs> not handle sick children. You know, I learned in my peds rotation that it was just heartbreaking for me. And I realized that no, no, pediatric nursing still is not what I wanted. But that was the beginning of me really being interested in the health promotion and wellness side of nursing, as opposed to nursing people back to health, really focusing more on how do we keep them healthy so that they don't end up in those situations. That's amazing. That That's actually quite insightful. Uh, a view to realize that you want to work focus on the person as opposed to the job title, which a lot of people say, oh, I want to become a doctor or I want to become a nurse or an architect or a lawyer or whatever. Uh, that was quite insightful of you in middle school to say, I think I want to focus on the person. That's, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, but I agree. I worked in the emergency room for a while and peds were always difficult for me to work with. Not because I don't I don't care for pediatrics, but to have them, it takes a special mindset that I don't have to <laughs> work with. You know, uh, I can't, you know, even my own kids, I've taken them to the ER a couple of times because of accidents or, you know, they had like croup or something like that. And uh, I'm I'm crying. They're crying. It's just a mess. So, <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> so it's a different story. Um, tell me about your, uh, if you could tell me about the process, your process of uh, going through school. Uh, uh, how, how was your, how was the process of you um, being at Hampton University? And what was your experience like there uh, in your undergraduate degree? Yeah, Hampton, my Hampton years, as I like to call them, um, were truly some of the best years of my life. Um, as an HBCU or Starkly Black College University, there is just a sense of family on campus from the moment that you get there, right? Um, my experience was quite different than most of my friends. I entered college as a mother of two, so I was a teen parent. So by the time I was starting as a freshman at Hampton, I had two little ones at home. And so let's see, I started Hampton in 91. My girls were born in 89 and 90. And one of the things that my mother, who has, is and has always been my greatest support, what she said is, you've always wanted to go away to school. And this is not going to change anything. So we will take care of and we'll do what we need to do so that you can go to school. So while you know I had the freedom of being away at school, I also had, you know, at least in mind that that added responsibility and knowing that you know while I was there I can have fun but I'm actually here for a purpose and mm. there are people back home that know that I need to be here for a purpose so you know I entered into Hampton and immediately began the nursing program which is kind of different than some of the programs now where you have to come in and then you test into or become accepted into the nursing program so from day 1 I was a nursing major 
And I think that first year is probably the same for everyone. And then, you know, nursing students tend to disappear. <laughs> By, you know, sophomore year, we're into nursing classes and courses. And, you know, we had nursing courses during the day, in the afternoon. And when we weren't in class, we were in clinicals. Um, but I truly, I, I truly enjoyed it. I really enjoyed um, learning the nuances of, you know, how to reach people, how to respond to them. I've always had a keen ability and, and to really understand what people need and to be able to read people and engage and connect and communicate. And so through every class, I really just enjoyed just learning that much more and then connecting all the dots with science. Um, I've always been good academically. I've always, you know, been at the highest group of my class. So school itself did not, did not come hard. Um, I actually enjoyed and still enjoy learning. So again, I balance, you know, being a mother, being away from my girls with the responsibilities of school. And, you know, each break, each summer, I came home and was there with my girls. But I would say it was smooth sailing probably till about senior year. Um, I had a scholarship, which I later learned was the same nursing workforce diversity related scholarship that I ended up leading the program at HRSA. So oh, wow. it was very interesting. Um, but I was a first generation college student. And so I was a part of that program, but it was a three year scholarship. And so senior year, the funds ran out. And, you know, I remember the dean bringing me into our office and saying, we've got to figure out what's going to happen here. Um, you know, we've got to figure out how to make sure that you graduate. And so she was absolutely instrumental in making sure that we plug that gap so that I was able to graduate on time. And, you know, I tell this story all the time, but from the time I was at Hampton through now, she has been also been one of my biggest supporters and was also one of my sponsors as I became a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. So oh, wow. nursing and Hampton are interwoven. Um, through my life from day one. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, mothers are incredible, you know, yes. uh, hearing about your mother uh, and the fact that you as a mother went through nursing programs and uh, makes me think of my own mom and wife and my wife's was incredible support when I was going through my programs. Uh, and my mom, uh, who immigrated to the US as a single mother, uh, with me 11 years old, and yeah. she has, can, she continues to support me. And yes. I'm almost 50 and she continues, she still <laughs> continues to support me once, you know. Uh, so, so I don't think, uh, again, mothers are incredible and they do amazing things. And I'm, uh, uh, so I'm grateful for you sharing that story. That's amazing. Um, I want to ask, uh, how was the environment at Hampton for you, because we talk about diversity in nursing. Um, and I think nursing, although we have seen some improvements in the workforce, uh, we still continue to struggle in recruiting uh, um, a diverse workforce. Uh, how was the environment at Hampton, do you think? What, what made that different? Uh, I know the answer, I just wanna uh, put it out there. Uh, and how can other universities do a better job in your opinion in recruiting um, a more diverse workforce into nursing programs? Yeah, you know, Hampton was an intentional choice for me. So I grew up on Long Island and though I lived in a predominantly black community, I attended a private Quaker school that was predominantly white. 
and it was on completely the literally the other side of the island from where I lived. And so from second grade through 12th grade, you know, that's where I was in school. So when it came time to graduate and select, I was only going to an HBCU. I had already made that decision. And so I chose Hampton, A, because I wanted to go to an HBCU. The campus is one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful I've ever seen, right? Um, so I chose Hampton because of that. And so I wanted to experience being around people that look like me, mm. who had, you know, shared goals and were also, you know, into academics and things of that nature. You know, funny, funny story is, you know, in high school, I was co-captain of the cheer squad. As I mentioned, I was, you know, high up as far as ranking in my class. And I arrived on Hampton's campus and guess what? So was everyone else, right. <laughs> you know, everyone else around me, they were also the captains of their cheer squads <laughs> and, you know, presidents of organizations and they were the cream of the crop at Hampton. And so the experience at an HBCU, what it does for many of the students that attend, especially the black students, is it takes that conversation of race largely off of the table. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, that does not become the difference between you and a fellow student. Now, what becomes the difference are those additional layers within the black community, right? So I also had an opportunity to learn and understand what is the difference between growing up in New York and growing up in Chicago, right? I remember meeting friends and like, wow, you have an accent. Why do you sound like you're from the <laughs> South and you're from Chicago? And so you end up learning about the great migration and families and things of that nature and understanding just the differences in cultures within the Black community. And so again, it's not a situation where it's pitting, you know, Black against any other race because we're all majority Black, right? And so we have right. a shared connection there. And so what it also did as you're moving through school. Um, again, it took away that whether you were, you were using it as an excuse, whether you were using it as a blanket of protection, whatever you thought you might've come using it as, it's gone. Mm. And so now you have to stand on your own merit, but at the same time, you have an opportunity where people are recognizing you for who you are and not because you're black or there's no discrimination because you're black. If, if there's something going on, it has absolutely nothing to do with your race. And so you learned how to deal with those type of issues without making, you know, race an issue. But again, it's not that that was ignored, right? But what it did was it helped you build a sense of self that was not based on your race. Mm. So when you graduate from an HBCU, and especially for me graduating from Hampton, I've never accepted any treatment, any interaction, any engagement that was solely based on my race. Because I, I, it was instilled in me for four years how great I am, right, with no conversation of race. And so, therefore, I have the expectation that others engage me that same way. So when you turn to that, trend, to that conversation of how can we in the nursing community, how can schools, how can organizations do a better job of increasing diversity, you have to make sure that people can be there as they are, Right. You have to make sure that you create an environment where you are accepting that person as they present to you. If you select a student, if you hire someone, it is not with the expectation that they're going to enter into your school or organization and conform. You've selected them because of what they can bring and add, and you have to celebrate and allow that. And I think people get caught up in it because they have this expectation of who is at your school or who is in your 
community or who's in your job. And so without even intentionally doing it, sometimes you start to measure them against some established criteria that is often not based on who they are or anyone that looks like them or anyone whose culture is similar to theirs. So I think we do within nursing have to do a better job of appreciating all of the folks that we have in nursing, which then translates into the way that we practice nursing because everyone doesn't do it the same, right? And there are cultural layers to how we practice nursing. And it's not just how we engage with our patients who are from different cultures. No, it's, it's our colleagues and how we interact with each other. And that includes, you know, leadership and how you, you know, engage with your managers, supervisors, executives, and vice versa. Because when we fail to identify and understand those cultural nuances, then we again, are not leveraging that diversity that oftentimes we have as a part of our mission statement and values and things of that nature. So I think fundamentally, um, how we address diversity is to stop thinking that it's hard, um, you know, and just do it. You know, right. I think we spend too much time trying to figure out how to do it. But when we walk outside and we say hi, and we're nice to people, we don't stop and think about how am I going to be nice today? and then put on this face and this act, we, we don't do that. So why does it become so difficult when we talk about how do we um, embrace diversity and inclusivity? inclusivity? Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. It it's just feels uh, a little bit strange that we're putting so much, so much resources um, in research and we're putting so much resources in um, roles to be developed for equity, diversity, inclusion, but some of the work is still lagging. Uh, and, and, I, and I agree with you, we just need to do it. Because, um, you know, just even my, even, uh, you know, uh, me coming out of, uh, out of, a, from, a, from, a mil from a military background of um, coming into, from a primarily being with like almost like 99.9% a male population where I served in the with the Navy and the Marine Corps uh, into nursing, uh, there's that culture shift. And it's um and and I kind of I want to relate a little bit to your to your to your discussion just because uh you go in with your own attributes, but everybody tries to reshape you into what and I'm putting air coats up into what nursing should look like, right? right. Uh, and I think we lose we lose quite a bit of leverage in um, when we do that. When we when we talk about we want a more diverse workforce, but we make everybody look the same, say the exact same things in the same tone, and so we a lot of conversions that happened in nursing programs. Um, right. So, so making that right. environments more acceptable is or um, friendlier to the yeah. diverse populations, I think is key. Yeah, and you, you also raise another point because in the field of nursing, we have to also embrace the different genders that are mm. reflected within our profession. And right. so to have a profession that is predominantly women or predominantly female, you know, we as a profession also have to make sure that we're not creating artificial barriers for those who do not identify as a woman, right? right? And so we have to kind of flip that script when we're talking about diversity, because most of the conversation is how can we increase, you know, women leadership? 
Well, we don't necessarily have that issue in nursing. We have the opposite issue, right? right? And so, but those same things, as you mentioned, have to be implemented because the idea is that we have to make sure everyone feels as though they can be a nurse and practice nursing in the way that they see fit. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, and, I, and I'm happy to say I, uh, you're not the first person, first nurse leader that I've spoken to that has had that uh, concept of uh, of being more accepting and everybody belonging in the world of nursing. Uh, because so many of the barriers, I don't want to call them, there are barriers, but so many of the rules we put into place is more exclusive than inclusive. Um, so how do we reach people and and get their best self into the world of nursing? Because nursing right. can only benefit from that. So thank you. Um, so uh, we, we digress a little bit from your professional <laughs> pathway. Um, so what was your, what did you do after you finished um, your nursing program? And how did you decide you were not going to stop at a bachelor's degree? That same dean actually decided for me. <laughs> uh, mentors are she, important. Um, they are, you know, it's that that strong encouragement that says, you know, you really should come back to school and immediately begin on your graduate degree. Wow. Um, in school, I didn't work while I was in undergrad, except on breaks and in the summers. And so upon graduation, I actually accepted a position at a um a convalescent center, which is a skilled nursing level, um, so subacute care. And I accepted that position. So that's where I started working before I became licensed. And then, of course, you know, transitioned from a graduate nurse to an RN at that same facility, working part time because I knew that I was returning to school. So I actually returned to Hampton for the family nurse practitioner program. At the time, we had the choice of education, administration or NP. And so I chose NP because, you know, at that time, you know, you become faculty when you retire, right? You, you know, no one does that, right? Um, and I don't know that I actually understood exactly what nursing administration was to select that. And so I knew about nurse practitioners and I knew I did want to continue with school. So I entered into the FNP program while I worked part-time at the subacute care center. Um, enjoyed learning and enjoyed the increased scope of practice for nurse practitioners. But as I got to the end of my schooling, I realized I actually didn't want to be a nurse practitioner. I didn't enjoy what felt like um, the time-limited engagements with people yeah. um, at that time. So this is now 1996-7. You know, nurse practitioners were not everywhere that we see nurse practitioners now. So in large part, nurse practitioners were working in physicians' offices and, you know, you had your panel, you had to keep the pace with the practice. And that had been my experience with my clinical rotations. And I realized that this did not, it didn't feel right. It felt almost forced. And it went against, again, the whole reason I became a nurse, which was to connect and to help people. And I felt limited by the time um, that was allotted and how many people you had to see. So Towards the end of my graduate program, I actually began working in home healthcare because I really enjoyed my community health rotation as a senior. So I began that position in home health. And when I graduated, even as an NP and became certified as a family nurse practitioner, I actually moved to North Carolina and continued working as a home health nurse, even though I was certified as a family nurse practitioner. 
And because of my love of, again, of babies and children and pregnant women and all things pregnant, uh, pregnancy related, I had an opportunity to enter into a labor and delivery residency at the local hospital in Charlotte. And that had been a dream of mine. But again, back then you, you only go into med surge from, you know, as a new nurse and you can't possibly begin in a specialty. <laughs> so that's actually how I ended up in subacute care. I did not want to work in the hospital. I did just did not have a desire, but, and I always said the only place that I would work is labor and delivery. And the reason for that is people are largely healthy when they come into labor and delivery, you know, an illness or an injury is not usually the reason that they present. So I actually started that um, residency in the labor and delivery program, finished that residency and probably a month after I finished, I delivered my third daughter oh, <laughs> on wow. the same unit that I worked in. <laughs> and um, that changed things because at this point now I have three girls. And so trying to decide how to juggle, you know, I was working nights at the time. And so how do I work nights? And I have three girls and I'm really trying to figure out there's got to be something different. So I continued working labor and delivery um, for quite a while, actually. And but again, missing holidays, um, you know, working nights and having to tag team with my husband at the time and he's handling day, he's handling night, I'm handling day and we're kind of two ships passing and, and you know. So I learned about case management while I was working in labor and delivery. A friend of mine who I'd gone to Hampton with was working in case management and she told me about it. And I was like, wow, that seems really interesting. So had a job, had an interview and began working full-time as a case manager for a company that was actually located in New Jersey while I lived in Charlotte. So for the first time I'm working in a home-based situation, um, but my clients were those who had catastrophic illnesses um, and also children with rare diseases. Many of them, uh, many of the adults were new cancer, had new cancer diagnoses as well. And so as a case manager, I would actually visit with them in their home in order to develop plans of care and treatment plans and coordinate with the multiple providers, because you can imagine how overwhelming, whether it's a child with a rare disease, a new cancer diagnosis, catastrophic illness, how all of that information is so difficult to take in. So my area of coverage, like I said, I lived in Charlotte and my area of coverage was all the way from Durham, North Carolina to Columbia, South Carolina. So I loved it. I just loved getting in the car, visiting people, because again, it reminded me of home health. Mm. And so I was able to, again, connect, take the time that they needed. I'd help them identify what was going to work for them and then build that plan and goal. And also had, um, again, still high risk, uh, high risk moms as well in that grouping. So I did that for a number of years until I decided to relocate up to the DC area. And unfortunately the company did not have a need in this area. Otherwise I likely would have continued. Uh -huh. um, but my love of case management is actually what continued in this area. So bounced from corporate into military case management. So working as a civilian, um, started the civilian based case management program at what's now Walter Reed. Oh, wow. They had a, yeah, they had a transition because they had active duty case managers, but what they were finding is that the active duty case managers, because they were in and out and they were, you know, they were leaving and PCSing, they didn't have a knowledge of the local area. 
And so it posed a challenge being a case manager, trying to connect people to resources and services when you don't know what exists. So they decided to bring in um, civilians. And so there were four of us that started that program up and worked there full time. Um, You mentioned, you know, your prior history in the military. I didn't know anything really about the military at that time. And I had the assumption that everyone is always taken care of, right? If you're on active duty, all of your needs are taken care of. (laughs) No, that's actually not the case. (laughs) Uh, You'd be amazed how many myths are out there about how military and veterans are taken care of. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so that was so eye-opening for me because, you know, because of my labor and delivery background and, you know, the background that I had, I started the OB case management program. Mm. And what my most challenging clients at that time were dependents of dependents, right? So if you have a teen mom who is a dependent of their military, um, military parent, their child is not a military dependent. Mm. And so you can imagine, um, you know, for those that are listening that are familiar with Bethesda, Maryland area, you can't always afford to live right around the base. And there is no housing for young sailors um, with families. So there were so many layers and it was so interesting to me to again, learn about another population, identify some different needs than I had experienced. Um, The moment I realized that some of my clients were eligible for WIC and those type of programs was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Um, So again, it, it opened my eyes to just a different set of circumstances and, you know, what later kind of informs the conversations where you're trying to explain how people are dealing with issues and circumstances that they did not create. They just find themselves in. And so trying to figure the way out of there, um, again, was very eye-opening for me. But I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions about why is this set up this way? Why don't we have services over here? Why don't, you know, why is this rule that way? Why is that policy that way? And so many roads pointed to the federal government and HHS that I said, I need to go there. Mm. Clearly they're making these decisions. And I just, I'm not certain that anybody know anybody up there knows what's going on out here, you know? Um, And I just felt like I needed to be that person to go tell everybody to make sure that folks are aware. Um, And that's how I ended up in HHS. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Um, And and I, and I agree with you and that's good. That that can be uh, its own other like multi-podcast distribution (laughs) of how military, military families, veterans, veteran families, caretakers, it just, it just branches out into so many different directions that people are just simply unaware of how the system works. And sometimes the decision makers, unfortunately, are not well informed and just assume um, there's a process in place. And a lot of times, especially for our younger uh, people, military uh, veterans that right. aren't making a lot of dollars and a lot of them I don't know if a lot of them I don't know the statistics on this but I'm sure there's a good number of them that have families and right. um, it becomes it becomes an issue so yes thank you well thank you for going to HHS and uh, trying to deal with that uh, <laughs> <clears throat> um, so you went to HHS uh, how to how is that that process for you because I'm sure it's a uh, more of a bureaucratic system than we would wish it to be. But how was that process for you going to HHS? 
Yeah, well, I will say getting in was as difficult for me as many other people have found it to be for them. Um, it, it was and remains one of those places where it's always helpful to find someone who's already working within an agency that you're interested in to help so that they can help you understand accessing the agency and, you know, how to apply and how to reach in and learn and make connections. Um, because I think I probably applied maybe three or four times before being selected for uh, the HRSA Scholars Program, which was in place at the time. And that program was set up because they realized that the workforce within HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, was aging. And they didn't necessarily have secession planning so that they would be able to replenish the workforce. So the program was set up by the then administrator to really bring in new talent and to grow the talent to become the next leadership within um, HRSA or HHS overall. So I came into that program and allowed me to rotate through four different areas within HRSA, learn project management, learn appropriations law, learn leadership development. It really placed us you know, in a very different, uh, with a different perspective than many people at HRSA at the time. Uh, because we rotated through four different areas, where you, you know, air quotes landed in your ultimate position, you ended up bringing with you everything you learned in those other areas, in addition to all of the courses that we had over that year. So I felt probably more prepared than other people who don't come in through a program like that when I first started my first, you know, official job. Um, but I did start at HRSA in the, what was then the Bureau of Health Professions in the Division of Nursing. And so that was really nice because it allowed me, you know, as I mentioned before, to be involved with the Nursing Workforce Diversity Program and have that aha moment that said, wait a minute, this sounds so familiar, right? The, the scholarships, the stipend, I think I know about this. And that's when I realized, oh, this is the program that helped fund my education while I was wow. at Hampton. So there was a personal connection. And so I started off as a project, uh, project officer in the program and then became the lead for that program within the Division of Nursing. Um, you know, it's, it's the federal government, so certainly bureaucratic. Um, I remember the first time I experienced a change of administration and you know, just understanding what that looks like and how that impacts agencies and how you have to then you know, align yourself with the new administration and whatever the priorities are. And, for many people, you know, our work day to day doesn't necessarily change, but the priority that it sits in, you know, sometimes does. Right. So I learned just how to nuance that, right? And how to create your programs and how to ensure that, you know, the goals that you establish transcend any type of, you know, administration changes, priorities where you can find something that relates for anyone, no matter right. what their belief system is. And so I enjoyed working with the Nursing Workforce Diversity Program and you know, really enjoyed meeting with faculty, deans. That was my first really true engagement on a national level with the nursing professional organizations and academia, um, regulatory bodies and all of those good things. So that was a really good learning experience for me. But as, ha as it happened on the outside, in the inside, I still was like, well, somebody's making these decisions and some of the constraints within the programs, what, where is this coming from? Like, how, how is this happening? And that's how I ended up in policy at HRSA. 
because you know there were questions and I wanted to understand how the laws were being translated because that ultimately is what policy is, right? It's a translation and understanding of the laws. And so understanding where we had flexibilities, um, I'm always one that tries to get to yes. It, it really doesn't matter what's going on. I'm gonna try to get to yes or whatever the most positive outcome is for the people impacted. And so that's what policy allowed for me. Wow. To really yeah. understand, you know, I always call it flexibility within boundaries, right? Tell me what the boundaries are. And for most times it is, well, this is a law. Okay, got it. That's the law. What exactly does the law say? Right. You know, and so really figuring out where's the flexibility and where do we have opportunities um, to do things perhaps a little bit differently if we need to, still within the confines of whatever that boundary is. So I would say yes to the point about it absolutely being bureaucratic, but by personality, I am one that can appreciate that kind of a system. And I've just become that much more savvy working within it. And so I think that that's also helped me as I've navigated different positions and roles since I've been in federal government. That's great. Um, and I think you're, you're, I guess I have a question for you that, um, how do we translate your uh, insider experience? Uh, because I'm I'm a huge believer that nursing is uh, needs to do a better job with informing our workforce about how to impact policy and how to make change through policy. And a lot of times we share policy, but we don't really share how do you change it if it's not working or how do you help a community through policy changes um, or a population um, on with policy changes. How do we translate that experience uh, into the general nursing workforce where they have a better understanding that their how much impact they could have? Um, right. And you know, where that really comes into play for me is that introduction of public health and mm. public health competencies, because with public health comes policy, right? So I started at Hearst in 2004. I didn't actually go back to school and, until after I was at HRSA. And then I finished my MPH in 2006. And that really is what planted that seed of, wait a minute, maybe I need to go into a different area because my mindset had been focused on that, but I didn't necessarily realize that that's what I was doing, right? So with that MPH and with that additional public health education, I realized exactly what you're talking about. And so that's also why I truly believe that public health nursing in and of itself is its own specialty. There will always be competencies and aspects that every single person in nursing should be able to be aware of. But when it comes to truly engaging at that highest level, it, it absolutely is part of what we as public health nurses who specialize in that area do. What I would say, though, is it's very important for every nurse, no matter where the person is working, to understand how to identify problems and then really tease apart where the problem is originating, right? Because when you understand where the problem originates, you have a better understanding of how to address it and come up with a solution. And so as a public health nurse, I'm always looking at the multiple levels, right? And so it's that engagement of the person 
the family, the organization, and then the larger systems that even that organization sits within. Because sometimes you might be dealing with that symptom of that individual person, but you're forgetting to look at the environment around them to see what in that could be changed to impact the, the symptoms. Because to me, it's just not good enough to continue treating the symptom. And we would never do that for a person without addressing the larger cause of the system or the symptom. So I'm not gonna continue feeding you, for example, cough medicine without really trying to understand why are you coughing, right? right? So same thing, when we're identifying problems, we have to look bigger. And I think that becomes the beginning of, you know, as you said, how do you plant that seed and get people curious? Because mm -hmm. nurses almost by definition are problem solvers. We just tend to think very much on a direct care, person-to-person, one-on-one type of approach. And so it really is that critical thinking that elevates that conversation to say, okay, this is what you do at an individual level. As you branch out, what are some other options? What are some other opportunities? And you know, I envision it almost the same way as we used to do those care plans and creating our nursing diagnosis. <laughs> right. I, I feel like it's the same thing. And what we, the only thing we missed is that extra question that talks about it beyond the individual person and their family. And so even if we ask that additional question to get people to think, right, then we could really begin to plant that seed of where we can make a difference. Because as you continue to ask why, that's when you get to the policy implications and the policy options. Because ultimately, you're going to get to whatever that, you know, rule is or that law is or that policy that says you must do it this way. Right. And then again, you ask the question, well, why? You know, and it's just not good enough to say, well, we always have done that. Nope, that, that, that answer does not hold water anymore. Right. Dump that one out. Let's start over. <laughs> right. And let's right. figure out what else is available. And that, you know, and using the language to let people know. And when you create the new way of doing it and you establish that this is the way we will all do it, do you know what that's called? It's called a policy, yeah. right? And planting that seed very early so people recognize it when they see it. And I think the, the empowering nurses to realize that they can actually make policy changes, right? Or initiate policy changes or, you know, inform the policy makers of the issues. Because sometimes the policy makers... Um, may not necessarily know what the issue is, or they're being fed different information. And I think that's where nurses come into play is where they can provide a new perspective uh, for yeah. those policymakers. Absolutely. And I, I think to that point also, in so many ways, it's ingrained in nurses when we're in school, right? That we are reacting or practicing in response to an order that has already been put in place. And what that does is it places our own nursing, nursing skills, nursing competencies, nursing knowledge, almost, you know, at a lower priority or a lower level of importance than that overarching direction. And I think where that translates when we come into practice is that when there is not an overarching direction, sometimes we get lost because we're not used to creating it. Right. And so it really is empowering nurses to continue making your nursing diagnosis because that is well within your scope of practice to address. The only difference between you know, a nurse who's working as a staff nurse at a bedside and me is that you know, my patient, if you will, is a whole population. It's not just one person. 
but it's the same right. thing. I can have a nursing diagnosis at a population level, and that becomes my public health nursing problem that I want to address. And so again, I'm still creating my nursing care plan with what is within my scope as a nurse. And so I think that even that is empowering to remind nurses that, you know, as much as we worked really hard to get those care plans done, um, to identify our nursing diagnosis and how we wished we could just throw it to the wind when we graduated, that way of thinking is critical. It's critical and we do it best. And I think it's just a reminder for nurses to operate that way, even in practice, and not to just leave it, you know, at the school where they, where they gain their pre-licensure education. Agree, agree, 100% agree. Um, well, I definitely want to uh, switch a little bit of our topic into your current role uh, as a chief nursing nurse officer in the U.S. Uh, Public Health Service Commission. Um, how did you get involved with that little bit of uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, move to a position of of uh, of such leadership? Uh, how did that kind of switch from um, so you, like your whole career, it feels like you've been, um, you've been gathering the experience <laughs> for this role. Um, so how did you decide that you're going to go into the, uh, into the, uh, public health service, uh, commission core? Yeah, it really does read as though at some point in my life, I set this goal and I've been working towards it. I absolutely did not. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't even have visibility on this role. Um, until I came into public health service and really didn't even have a great understanding until later as I promoted. But I came into HRSA as a civilian. And at the time, I remember seeing, you know, people in uniform, wasn't quite sure exactly who they were, what they were doing, why they were there. I remembered having worked, you know, at, um, at Bethesda I remembered the Navy uniforms and I remember thinking that they're not quite Navy. <laughs> they, they, something is different about what they're wearing. And I remember somebody told me, oh, well, that's the nurse corps. And so I remember looking up nurse corps and of course it brought up Navy and, you know, the military. I was like, but I don't, I don't want to join the military. This is not the military. Something's different. So finally um, learned exactly what the public health service and the commission corps was. And so many of, the, many of the employees who came in through the HRSA Scholars Program ultimately became PHS officers, which is really interesting. And I think it's also a testament of the leadership and the drive that we all came in with. Um, so I converted and was commissioned into PHS in 2006. Wow. And I was able to remain in that same role. So one day I was working in the division of nursing as a civilian and the next day I was on active duty. So I had the benefit of really converting in place. And so I didn't have to you know, move or find a new job. But what it did for me is it gave me an opportunity you know, to, for one, and I joke all the time, is it's the first time in my life I've only had one W-2, right? <laughs> as, as a nurse, we tend to hold multiple jobs and a part-time, even when we have a full-time, just because we feel like we just need to. Um, so it was an opportunity to work for the same employer and still have a variety of experiences to include mm -hmm. deployment. And that was really the drive for me because as I moved further in policy, I realized that what I was missing was the touch with people and communities, you know, speaking back to my home health and case management days, I missed engaging with people outside of the building I worked in. And, you know, the deeper you get into policy, 
your phone actually doesn't ring from the outside because most people are reaching policy internally. And so that I realized was a bit of an issue for me. And so I joined PHS largely because the opportunity to deploy and impact communities. And um, it's been, again, one of the best career decisions that I've ever made, um, personally and professionally. You know, many of us tell the story of, you know, taking that huge pay cut when we first come in. Um, (laughs) I came in with 11 years of nursing. So I wasn't one that came in, you know, as a new grad or as a new nurse, even I was a nurse for 11 years before I came on active duty. And so as a result, um, I promoted quickly also because I came in with, with that background and um, basic level of experience. But as I said, it has opened amazing doors for me, um, created an opportunity for a significant number of mentors who've also helped me along, um, along the way. Um, as far as getting to the leadership role that I'm in now, I credit a lot of that to having started the division of nursing at HRSA, as I mentioned before, that was my first experience really understanding practice, academia, regulation as it related to our practice. And so that laid a great foundation for, you know, different positions as I moved within HRSA and then even left HRSA to work within the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, um, which is now a new um, agency as opposed to an office. And so that instilled in me a great desire to continue on the conversation of workforce diversity as I had run that program, but also recognizing that as I moved, I did not see a lot of nurses from underrepresented backgrounds in leadership. You know, all of a sudden they started disappearing as I started moving up the chain. And so again, with Hampton behind me, right, because that's not where I come from. I know that people are out there who can do these things. And so that has always been a push for me. And also it pushed me to want to be a visible leader within the public health service. You know, as I mentioned, I didn't come into the service and say, you know, I want to be chief nurse one day. It's never been a career goal. However, I've always positioned myself so that I was continuing to operate in that manner that if I ever chose to, or if I had the opportunity to, I would have the skill set to be able to do it, whether it's at, whether it's here or whether it's somewhere else that executive leadership development was important to me because being a mentor and sponsoring others that are coming behind me to help pull them along with me has always been a priority. So I truly believe that um, without the public health service, I would not have had the number of opportunities that I have now. Um, Without my Hampton preparation, without the beginnings at HRSA and the Division of Nursing, I wouldn't be the chief nurse that I am now. Um, But I think it all comes together for me because I, I would definitely say this is the first time in my life where I feel like I am operating on all cylinders and every single aspect are reflections of my passion. There's no area in this role as chief nurse that I dread. You know, um, I talk with Lieutenant Commander Sherwood, who's my special assistant all the time. And she's always reminding me, ma'am, you know, that seems like a lot. I'm like, but I really want to do it. You know, (laughs) I really, I got to do it. I got to do it because that's an important conversation. 
and I balance, you know, if I can't do it, if I can't find someone else who can, I don't want it to not be said or not be communicated or not be reflected. Um, so this has been wonderful, um, serving in this capacity as what I call the nurse's nurse for the public health service, right? Making sure that I am there present and taking care of nurses in the same way that nurses take care of everyone else because no one comes into the commission core as anything less than a professional in their own right. And so I trust and believe and meet people at that point, right? You have high expectations of people, they rise to your level of expectation. If you keep it low, they will drop to it. And right. so I do have high expectations, but I'm also willing to be there to help people close the gap between where they see themselves and where, the, where I see that they could be. And so it gives me that opportunity internally but then it also gives me that opportunity externally to do all of those things that I've mentioned since we started chatting, right? So promoting nursing as a profession, making sure that we are reaching to those who are often underrepresented in many places and spaces of nursing, opening doors to give people a voice where they might not have had a voice, and then just daring to be bold enough to practice the way I practice, right? And lead as a nurse leader, the way that I lead, um, fully authentic, very, you know, approachable, um, very cool, calm and collected. You know, I have people all the time that say, I didn't know I could talk to you. Of course you can talk to me. <laughs> you know, I didn't know I could call you. Of course you can call me. Right. Um, now there is a finite number of hours in a day and, you right. know, days in a week. However, um, who I am at my core has not changed as a result of being chief nurse. And I, I feel like I've provided that as an example to others. Um, kind of circling right back to where we started in that whole conversation of a need to conform to what people expect, because I'm sure there are people out there who have an expectation of what, you know, an 07 flag officer should be, should do, should look like, how they should carry themselves and how they act. And I dare say there's nothing wrong with my version of it. No, absolutely not. Well, I'm I'm personally grateful for for you responding to my message. Uh, so <laughs> some some people are like, "How do you get the guests that you get on your show?" And I'm like, "I message them, I email them, right. and they respond." Uh, so it's not always a yes. So I'm very grateful for you saying yes to uh, coming on the show. Uh, I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, uh, really quickly, not really quickly, we have a couple of minutes. So uh, I'm, do you uh, have anything else you want to share or do you want to plug the uh, the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps uh, recruitment announcement, anything you want to share uh, with our audience? Sure. And, and I think, you know, it absolutely is a plug, but it's also for me, you know, we walk our walk and talk our talk. And I feel like all of us as Commission Corps officers, our walking billboards, um, the work that we're doing across the country and across the world, quite frankly, really is a testament to who we are. But you know, still, not everyone actually understands who the Commission Corps of the Public Health Service are. And you know, I remind people all the time that we've got eight uniformed services, and we are one of the eight. Um, right. We are not the military, however, we are a uniformed service and the only service who is focused on the public health of the nation. And that's exactly what we're here for. And so across the, the nursing community or PHS nurses, we are just above 1200 at this point. And we are dispersed across just about every federal agency where you can um, find PHS officers. 
largely within HHS, but some of us, including myself, are detailed outside of HHS. So for example, I am in the Department of Homeland Security where I lead uh, policy for ICE Health Services. But where you can find us where changes need to be made and where people need access to care and great work. And so we've got clinical nurses, we have public health nurses, and in addition to what we call our day jobs, we deploy in response to public health emergencies and disasters, and especially this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so we actually are hiring. We also have a ready reserve component um, where we are accepting applications for both. So for those who want to remain in the workforce and you know deploy with us, train with us and learn more um, and engage when your schedule allows more so than being on active duty full time, the ready reserve is also an opportunity to be a part of the Public Health Service Commission Corps. Um, but I think, you know, what I definitely want to touch upon is just, you know, not only for the nurses within the Commission Corps, but nurses across the country and the strong and significant mental toll that this ongoing pandemic has really had on each of the nurses. And I think early on in the pandemic, nurses, as well as those who love us, as I like to frame everybody else who's not a nurse, right? Um, we tend to think more of others than ourselves. And we tend to forget that the nurses themselves have been impacted by this pandemic. Um, many, many nurses have lost their lives and many nurses have family members, friends who have lost their lives, coworkers even. And so we have to understand how to make sure that we're taking care of those who take care of others. And going back to what we said before, when you're looking at that as a problem, if you will, it's not on nurses to fix that, right? It's not at all on the individual nurse to fix that situation. It has more to do with um, the environment that we're finding ourselves working in, the organizations, the organizational structures, um, the workplace environment is significant and it's important. The Surgeon General recently released an advisory that talks about workplace well-being. It also talks about you know, how to address health worker burnout. And those two are complementary reports. And I highly recommend that people take a look at that and especially with the lens on how we can do a better job of taking care of nurses. Because if we don't have nurses, we don't have a healthcare system at all. There's no way we can operate without nurses. And so as we continue to empower nurses to have a voice, I just wanna make sure that people are aware that that voice will also demand you know, better environments so that we can continue doing our best work. So I think that that absolutely is an important message to share. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm grateful for that message and, and it's, uh, I hope it reaches far and wide. Absolutely. Um, so um, thank you again. Thank you for your time. Uh, greatly appreciate it. I feel like I need to give a special thanks to Hampton University and your mom <laughs> uh, for uh, for steering you uh, or building the foundation for you to do what the, the amazing work that you're doing now. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, we've been listening to Rear Admiral uh, Mix. Uh, she is the Chief Nurse Officer in the U.S. Public Health Services Commission Corps. Greatly appreciate your time, and we will talk again soon. Thank you. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com 
That's www.alirtayyeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.